Now, John Whitmore is our speaker today. He is um, Dick Whitmore's son. Dick is the teacher in the Gospel of John Sunday School who has been talking to us about it and um, getting a great response. Um, it was probably a couple of months ago, huh, Dick, when we were talking and you told me that your son was a professor of geology at Cedarville. And um, I was like, whoa. And I, I, think I asked the cryptic question, uh, does he travel and speak? <laughs> and now he said, well, yeah, he does all the time. I said, does he uh, speak at churches? Hint, 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 hint. <laughs> but here he is. It's only been a couple months, and he's here already. Um, and there's a lot that could be said about John. He was, um, studied under Henry Morris at the Institute of Creation Research. That's pretty awesome. Uh, studied at Kent State, which is, of course, a local school. But as he said, his greatest claim to fame is that he's a graduate of Ravenna High School and has gone on to do these things, right? Yeah, the greatest honor that has ever been. But our greatest honor is that you came to speak to us today. We look forward to it. Um, We look forward to learning from what you have to say. And so I want to introduce to you John Whitmore, Dr. John Whitmore. I think I got it turned on here. Well, good morning. I have to admit to you, I'm much more comfortable in front of a a class of students or even more so in my field clothes. Um, I I think it's important for uh, my geology students to see lots of rocks. (laughs) So we go lots of places. Thursday, uh, I'm headed with uh, my students over spring break to go to Death Valley in Anzabrego Desert uh, for a week. Um, I spend a lot of time in Grand Canyon. I usually do uh, two raft trips uh, every summer with Canyon Ministries and Answers in Genesis. Um, one of the raft trips uh, that, that I did a few years back is actually going to be a documentary movie. Uh, it's coming out this spring. Uh, maybe six years ago, you, some of you may have seen the movie Is Genesis History. Uh, Thomas Purefoy produced that. Uh, The sequel to that is coming out this spring. Uh, It's almost done. Uh, We're going to get to see a a mostly finished version of it Tuesday night at Cedarville University. Uh, It's going to be the official premiere, and uh, there's still a few more odds and ends to to do on it before he releases it to the public at at large. But Andrew Snelling uh, and I, uh, the the film documents some of the work we've been doing in Grand Canyon and, and some other places uh, in that film, so I hope you guys uh, get to go out and, and and see that at some point when it becomes available. Um, I've been at Cedarville, and now it's hard to believe uh, more years in Cedarville than I spent growing up in Ravenna. But uh, the uh, it's it's neat to see the spirit moving. Uh, the spirit's moving on college campuses, and and uh, it's moving at Cedarville as well. Students are getting saved. Students are going to other universities and and uh, sharing the gospel, and those people are getting saved, and it's a, a pretty neat uh, environment uh, to be in to see the, the worship and, and everything else that goes along with that. Our students uh, are required to go to chapel every day, but I think many of the students would go to chapel every day whether it was required or not. Uh, the Spirit is, uh, is really moving, so that's been, uh, been really neat to see. Um, I'm not a preacher, um, but uh, more of a teacher, and so 
I, I hope I can uh, help you to, to learn and appreciate some things from, from uh, 2 Peter this morning. We're going to spend a lot of time there. Uh, just a small uh, little epistle uh, way in the back of your Bible uh, toward the end. Uh, two books there, First uh, and Second Peter. And so I want to share uh, a few things uh, from, from that epistle. Let's see if we can get this to work. Do I need to turn this thing on? It should be on. Did we put the batteries back in? There we go. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Peter, uh, uh, two little epistles that are just so rich uh, near the end of your New Testament. Of course, uh, Peter uh, was, was one of the disciples of Jesus. And uh, Peter uh, says he's uh, writing this letter uh, to some churches that are in Turkey. Uh, the place where just a phenomenal, phenomenally large earthquake uh, happened here in the past uh, a week or so, and uh, but uh, he's writing to some of these churches uh, in this area for the churches, and you know as Peter writes uh, in, in both epistles, he mentions uh, many times that these people are undergoing persecution, and that was not uh, unusual, of course, for the early church. Uh, Peter himself is going to be crucified upside down uh, short, shortly after this. And, um, and, that, and that was the end of, of many of the disciples that followed Christ. And they were just young men, uh, but look what they did. <laughs> you know, through the help of the Holy Spirit and, uh, you know, look what Jesus started. Uh, just, just amazing. But Peter writes these, uh, writes these two epistles uh, there are people that are hurting, uh, there are people that are persecuting, people are wondering, you know, what in the world is going to happen next. And Peter uh, reminds them of, of some things that they need to be focused on and, and thinking about and so forth uh, in these uh, two uh, short letters. And I want to focus in in Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 3 uh, today. And so this, uh, this chapter is a passage of prophecy. This is a chapter of prophecy uh, that, that Peter is uh, giving us here. And in verse 3, uh, Peter says uh, that in the last days, scoffers or mockers are going to come. And uh, this is going to ha happen with them. It's happening uh, today as well. Uh, I'm a practicing scientist, and so... Uh, I go to a lot of secular uh, conferences with lots of geologists around, and many times I'm mocked uh, for believing that, you know, the Bible is the Word of God and that the Bible uh, teaches real geology and real earth history and, and so on. And Peter says that this is especially going to happen uh, in the last days. And I've, uh, you know, as I study uh, history, um, one of the things I uh, often look back to is the year 1830. And in the year 1830, there was a, a book that was published that became very influential. It was called Principles of Geology. Uh, the book was published by Charles Lyell. Uh, he was a, an English lawyer, and so he was a, a fairly good writer, and he laid out a really good argument. And the argument uh, that he laid out uh, has become known as the, the principle of uniformitarianism. And basically, uh, Lyell said that if you look at modern-day 
rates and processes and things like that, you can interpret the past like that. So if you see a river uh, flowing through a canyon and that canyon is very gradually eroded over time, we can extend that back and figure out how long it took uh, to make that canyon. Uh, if we see sediment accumulating in the ocean, we can measure the rate of accumulation and figure out you know, how long uh, the sediment's been, been getting there and, and so on. And that little book uh, was picked up by a young 25-year-old. His name was Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin took that book with him on a five-year voyage around the world. And Darwin visited places like South America, uh, the Galapagos Islands, Australia, <laughs> wrapped all the way around uh, Africa, came back to South America again, and then got home. But believe it or not, uh, Darwin did more geology on that voyage than he did biology. He's often credited with all the biology that he did. Uh, he collected birds and, and, and all kinds of other things and sent them back to England, but he was constantly doing geology as well. He made the first geologic map of South America. Uh, he made observations on, uh, on, on uh, volcanic islands and, and made some theories about how they formed. Uh, he described an earthquake and big tsunami that they had on the west coast of South America and, and some other things during that voyage. And from his writings, it's very apparent that he was picking up Lyell's idea of uniformitarianism, these slow, gradual processes. And look at what Peter uh, says right here. Uh, these scoffers, these scoffers will say, where's the promise of his coming? And I've, I've color-coded some things here, and whenever you see blue, uh, this is God's word up here. So we have God's word uh, throughout this passage that we'll see, God's promise uh, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were since the beginning of creation. In other words, these scoffers are going to say, you know, nothing's going to change. Everything's been going on just as it always has. Jesus is never coming back, you know, and, you know, and, and things are just going to keep on going on as they have been going on. It sounds a lot like the the idea of uniformitarianism that Lyell proposed so long ago. And of course, uh, Darwin uh, took that idea, that geological idea, and applied it to biology, didn't, it? He, didn't he? He said that life gradually changes and slowly changes over long periods of time. And that was completely different from what Scripture said. What does Scripture say? We go back to Genesis chapter 1 and what does Genesis chapter 1 say about how life got here on the earth? Did it say that life evolved over millions of years? No, it says that God created it. And what does uh, Genesis uh, chapter 6, 7, 8, 9 uh, tell us about the flood? It says that the flood was a real event that was brought on the earth because of man's sin, right? And these two guys, Lyell and Darwin, they completely changed the thinking of the scientific community. Uh, before this time, uh, many scientists gave credence to scripture. Uh, scientists like Sir Isaac Newton, probably the most famous scientist of all time, was a Bible-believing Christian. Uh, in fact, Newton has more writings on uh, commentaries of scripture than he does scientific stuff. Uh, he was a believer. 
And yet these two guys, Lyell and Darwin, completely turned around the scientific community. So first of all, Lyell comes along and he says, we don't need Noah's flood to interpret geology. Uh, we don't need Genesis to interpret geology. It's been going on for a long time, very slowly over long periods of time. And so uh, scientists began to look differently at the geology that was described in Genesis. And then what happened when Darwin came along? Darwin published The Origin of Species in 1859, and people threw away throughout God's creation then as well, didn't they? And it, um, those two guys probably single-handedly caused a, a massive shift in scientific thinking. And all of a sudden, scientists could uh, do their science without having to involve the scriptures or involve God at all. And they could have a scientific reason to be atheists. They didn't need scripture. And in fact, one of the writings, uh, one of the letters that Lyell wrote to a friend uh, after all this, he said his main purpose in writing Principles of Geology was to dissuade people from the writings of Moses. The writings of Moses include Genesis, don't they? And so um, that's, a, that's a little background here about, about what's going on, a little history lesson for you. But you remember Peter is saying that these scoffers are going to come scoffing and mocking in the last days. And who are they going to be scoffing and mocking at? All of us, right? All right. Take a look at verses 5 and 6 here in this little book. Uh, Peter says this, for they deliberately overlooked this fact. And I love the way the King James uh, says this. The King James says that these mockers or these scoffers are going to be willfully ignorant. What does willfully ignorant mean? Willfully ignorant means there's, there's a microphone right here, right? There's no microphone there. I can't see any microphone, right? That's willfully ignorant. The evidence is right there before you, but you refuse to acknowledge it. And what does Peter say that these scoffers, these mockers, are going to be willfully ignorant of in the last days? Two things. There's one in verse 5 and one in verse 6. And you guys are my classroom today. You guys are my students so I expect my students to talk back. So what are they going to be willfully ignorant of? What's in verse 5? The creation. And what's in verse 6? The flood. So what happened when Charles Lyell came along? All of a sudden there was no geological reason to believe that the flood, Noah's flood, was a real event any longer. When Charles Darwin came along, and remember he was influenced by Lyell, he wrote The Origin of Species. All of a sudden there was no reason to believe Genesis chapter 1. There was no reason to believe, as we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning, that Jesus Christ was the one that called the creation into existence. We can put the flood aside. We can put God's judgment aside. God's not going to judge people. He never judged the world with the flood. 
We can put the creation aside. God never created anything. And pretty much single-handedly, those two books, those two men, uh, turn the scientific community and the, the Bible-believing community away from the scriptures. Because what was the response of the church back then? And this wasn't the response of everybody. But the response of many of the people that were in the church at the time, not just the scientists. Oh, these scientists are really smart. They're telling us that, you know, God didn't create everything. They're telling us that the flood wasn't real. And so what was the response in the church? The response in the church was, well, we can, you know, turn our head aside. We don't really need to believe Genesis 1 through 11. We don't really need to believe that that, that is fact. It's not, you know, important uh, for uh, Scripture. And, you know, maybe Genesis 1 through 11 is, is just a fairy tale, or maybe it's just a, a nice way to understand how things started off. Or maybe, you know, Moses just kind of wrote that so the children of Israel would have their own uh, creation story. And the whole, uh, most of the church community began to turn away from the scriptures. And, uh, and I, you know, look where we are today. Now, I've, I've studied uh, creation science for uh, many years now, and it was a struggle for me. Uh, when I was at Kent State University, I went there as a Christian, but uh, as I went there, I went, went there in the honors program, and I, I had uh, to pick this uh, English class when I went there. And it was a small, uh, we got to pick a small English class that we could be part of. And the professors uh, put out the syllabus ahead of time so we can kind of see what they were going to cover, what we were going to read, and so forth. And there was this one professor that we were going to read uh, the Pentateuch. We were going to read the book of Job. Uh, he had some other uh, literature on there, some Greek literature and so forth that we were going to read. And I thought, this will be interesting. I'd like to read that since I was a Christian. And I got in the class, it was a year-long class, so we went through this class a whole year, and it was the hardest class I've ever had, <laughs> freshman, freshman in college. And uh, I had uh, a lot of struggles uh, in that class. But spring semester, he gave us a, a reading list, and we were to pick one classic work off of that reading list to write our paper on. And on the list was the origin of species. And I thought, I'm going to be a paleontologist, and so at some point, I better read the origin, right? And so I did. And that's when I really began to struggle, because as I read the origin, I realized this is not what this says. It's completely different. And as I struggled to write the paper, I, you know, I had to write a paper for this class. I just didn't need to read the book. I had to write. And I'm thinking, what in the world am I going to write about? And so I tried to hobble something together. I kind of made up this idea that maybe the days of creation were long periods of time or something like that and try to, you know, mesh the two ideas together, maybe take the best of both worlds and 
And a lot of times that's how we think, right? Well, we have to compromise. We have to compromise. We have to, you know, both are right. So we have to try to figure out how to, how to put them together. And I, I turned that paper in and I just had the sickest feeling inside my stomach. And how come? Because I didn't treat this book as holy. I didn't treat this book as, as true. And, you know, that really started it for me. I, 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 I got to figure this out. You know, is this true? Or is the, the origin of species true? The geology that I'm learning at Kent, is that true? I got to figure out what's going on. And so that, that really began the struggle for me. And uh, I, I became, uh, you know, a bad word <laughs> to many other geologists. I became not only a creationist, the worst kind of creationist, which is a young earth creationist. <laughs> and a young earth creationist believes this book is true, not only when it comes to creation and the flood, but you know those chapters that you guys skip over when you read through your Bible? This guy begat this guy. This guy was so many years old when he begat that guy and so on. And all those things you like to skip over, guess what? Those are important. And those genealogies are important because of what? Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is the very first promise of Jesus Christ. And it says, through your offspring, there is going to come a redeemer. And those genealogies are important because they tie Jesus Christ all the way back to Adam and Eve. They prove that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. And without that genealogies, we wouldn't have that. Those genealogies also give us a timeline. Uh, they aren't perfect. There's, there's some spots in there where we have some questions about and so forth, but... They're not missing thousands of years or anything like that. There's a, a few in there where, where we wonder if there might be a few generations missing. But it gives us a genealogy to, to show us that we have just over about 6,000 years to work with that we have to put all this earth history into. And that's a really hard thing for a geologist. Uh, but I've come to believe, I've, I've studied the, the radioactive dating and the rocks and all of that, and I've come to believe that science supports this book and that we can stand on it. It's not like that we have all the answers yet, and that's why I'm a scientist. <laughs> I love to, to find things out and discover things, right? I love to go out to places like Grand Canyon and learn, so we don't have all the answers yet, but... Um, you know, I go out there and find things and, and discover things and, and learn things. But look at what Peter says. These scoffers are going to deliberately forget they're going to be willfully ignorant of two things. The first is the creation. The, first, the second is the flood. And if we go onto a college campus today, if we go onto the campus at Kent State University and we say that we're a young earth creationist or that we say that we believe this book, how are most people going to respond? They're going to laugh. They're going to scoff. They're going to mock, right? This prophecy that Peter made so many years ago is now coming true. 
It wasn't true, you know, 300 years ago. 300 years ago, many practicing scientists were also Bible believers. Uh, But this prophecy is coming true uh, today. So what kinds of things uh, do I see as evidence for creation? So I've studied both. I've studied uh, a lot of geology. I've studied a lot of biology as well. And uh, one of the most uh, fascinating classes I ever took, it's been uh, 20 years since I've taken it now, but I took a class in molecular biology, and the field has progressed uh, so far beyond uh, what I learned 20 years ago. Uh, But that's all about uh, DNA and and things like that. And I was just, I knew a little bit about it already, but I was just absolutely astounded at the complexity of life. So, you know, I, I do a lot of hiking in, in Grand Canyon and, and other places. And as we hike along the trail, uh, sometimes the trail uh, will get a little hard to follow. So you get down into a wash and you're kind of wondering, well, you know, when do I get out of the wash back onto the trail? And oftentimes you look for something called a cairn. A cairn is a pile of rocks, usually just two rocks stacked on top of each other so you can find your way. And just two simple rocks in a landscape that's covered with rocks all over the place, two rocks on top of each other, and automatically our minds recognize, oh, somebody put that rock on top of that rock. Now, could it have gotten there by chance? Maybe. But we're kind of looking for it, right? Now, if you saw three rocks on top of each other like that, definitely somebody had to do that because, you know, how could, a, how could the rocks bounce and, and land like that, right? But um, we look for evidence of design. And I think if we open our minds up and take a look, we see design all around us. The DNA molecule is so much more complex than those two or three rocks that are piled up there. Billions of molecules and base pairs all all stuck together. And if some of them get out of order, we've got a problem. We have a genetic disease. And, you know, it it astounds me that that, uh, some scientists can, with a straight face, say that had to evolve. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> it, it just astounds me. It absolutely astounds me. Um, but I see things like that. And, and uh, Paul, as he opens up uh, the letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, uh, such a dark chapter in the Bible to read. And Paul says uh, in verses 19 and 20 in Romans chapter 1, that all people have to do is look and they will see the evidence for the creator. They will see evidence from things that God has made and God made life. Uh, We live in a world that is so, uh, we live in a fallen world for sure and the earth groans and waits to be um, uh, remade in in the last days. Uh, But uh, we live in a world where if we look around, we see the design of the world uh, all around us. And as a scientist, 
Uh, I just don't see any evidence at all that everything has come about by chance, random processes. Um, it, it can't happen. It is just so complex. We see a lot of evidence of fine-tuning. Uh, for example, all of you are breathing in here today, I think, right? And what is the reason that we breathe? There's oxygen in the air, right? Have you ever been in a hospital or a nursing home where somebody is on oxygen and there's a little sign on the door that says, you know, danger? Why do they put those danger signs up? You don't want to go in there and smoke, right? <laughs> because oxygen burns. It, it encourages, uh, you know, makes things even more flammable. Uh, what if we have 21% oxygen in the air? Uh, what if it was 22% or 23%? Not a big difference, is it? <laughs> Actually, it is. We'd be putting fires out all the time. What if we were a little bit closer to the sun? We're about what, 92, 93 million miles away from the sun. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Trying to <laughs> remember. But uh, I'm not remembering stuff so well anymore. But uh, what if we were a little closer? We would get pretty warm, right? Uh, our earth depends on water. And if we were a little closer to the sun, all our water would be gas and we'd be a planet like Venus. Uh, the planet of Venus, all the water is water vapor uh, and can't exist as liquid water because it's too hot. What if we were a little farther away from the sun? It'd be all ice. <laughs> we're just in the perfect spot where we have both solid, liquid, and water vapor to run the water cycle. Um, what if uh, the earth spun on its axis a little faster? Boy, the days would go by fast, <laughs> wouldn't they? Um, and what if it was slower? Like, what if we had like 40-hour days and the nights were 20 hours long? What would happen to the temperature outside? Any of you guys ever lived in Alaska in the wintertime? <laughs> it has a long, long night, and what happens to the temperature? It's it really cold. In other words, what I'm saying is that there, and I, could, I have a list that's, you know, much longer than that. But there are so many things that are fine-tuned where God has designed the earth and put the earth just in the right place, put all the right ingredients around us for life to thrive. And what's amazing, not only life thrives, but life thrives in the midst of the curse. So in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned and messed everything up. We have thorns and thistles and work and sweat and toil and eat mosquitoes, <laughs> ticks. <laughs> but even in the midst of that, life thrives. And God designed a creation that could sustain itself even in the midst of a curse, in a cursed world, which I find really amazing. Um, another um, uh, thing that I see as a scientist, I see evidence around me of a, of a young earth. And uh, this, this gets into geology a little bit. And I, I don't want to turn this into a geology classroom this morning, but maybe I do. <laughs> but um, I see evidence of a young earth. So 
Um, I've uh, collected a number of dinosaur bones uh, in, in the past and in different places. And one of the things that's come out in the literature over the past 20 years is that scientists have been looking at dinosaur bones and they've been finding blood cells and nerve cells and all kinds of cellular material in the dinosaur bones and they're scratching their heads thinking, how does that last 60 million years? <laughs> well, I'm scratching my head thinking how it can last 4,000 years since the time of the flood because organic material decomposes. It, it comes apart. It, 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 it falls apart. And there's dinosaur bones that I have in my lab that I collected. And I, I told my students, well, you know, this, uh, this technique is in the literature. Why don't you see if you can replicate uh, this technique with my bones. And so two days later, they said, hey, Dr. Whitmore, come look under the microscope. <laughs> and they had little cellular pieces and tissues that were still stretchy under the microscope from the dinosaur bones I had in my lab. That, you know, there's, there's biological material that hasn't decomposed yet. And it tells me, it screams to me, that the earth is not millions or billions of years old, that these fossils are really young. I've done some work with carbon-14 and, and most people, the, the only type of dating they know about is carbon-14. There's actually lots of types of, of dating and, and geologists don't even use carbon-14 very often because it doesn't give uh, the millions of years old date that they're often looking for. But I've actually sent dinosaur bones to labs for carbon-14 dating. And the, uh, uh, the bones were supposed to be about 100 million years old. All right, so we sent these bones off to the lab and didn't tell them they were dinosaur bones because we wanted them to carbon-14 date the bone. And if we told them they were dinosaur bones, they would refuse because carbon-14 is only good for about 60 to 80,000 years. So we sent the bones off to the lab. We got a date back. 30,000 years old. Like, oh, that's interesting. I, I don't believe they're quite that old, but, uh, you know, they, they still had carbon-14 in them. And we sent some other bones to the lab. Well, the lab got wind of what we were doing, uh, wrote us a nasty letter, and said, don't send us any more bones. <laughs> but, you know, so much for unbiased science, right? But these bones had carbon-14 in them, which shows that they were still young. Carbon-14 decays very, very quickly. In fact, all you guys have carbon-14 in your bodies. I have it in mine. Uh, every living thing has carbon-14. And when you have things like dinosaur bones and coal and diamonds with carbon-14 in them, that shows that things are really young and that things haven't been around for so long. It supports, you know, what this word says about ages. The other thing that Peter says here, that, that God, that uh, these scoffers are going to deliberately um, overlook, be willfully ignorant of the fact of the creation. They're going to be willfully ignorant of the fact of the flood. And we read... Uh, the details about the flood in uh, Genesis 6 through 9, uh, the story of Noah. And unfortunately, people, um, you know, we, uh, we have this in our kids' storybooks, right? And, and 
we read this to our preschoolers as a cute little story. We decorate our nurseries with Noah's flood stuff. And, and I'm sorry if any of you have young kids and, and have decorated your, your nursery with a flood. That it's, there's some things that are cute. Um, but you think about the flood and the purpose of the flood and why God sent the flood. And, and God said that he regretted that he had created man that was so bad. And when we think of the flood, we, I don't think we really have a concept of what it was like. As you read the, the account in Genesis, it's a narrative account, so it's not poetry or anything like that. The Hebrew scholars will tell you that. Um, there's an emphasis in there of all and every and everything. Uh, words like that are used over 60 times in that text. What do you think the writer was trying to communicate when something's repeated over and over and over and over again? And you read that account and you know what, what Noah had to go through. Uh, Noah is identified as a preacher of righteousness in the New Testament, but he preached. I'm not trying to discourage you pastors, but uh, he preached for over 100 years. And how many converts did he have? How many people were on the ark? Eight people. That was it. And there were probably millions and millions of people outside that died during the flood. And, you know, we read accounts of floods and, and stuff like that. And I don't really think we have an idea of what a global flood can do. We barely have an idea what a local flood can do. There's a famous, there's a famous flood that occurred in uh, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, maybe some of you have read the book or uh, have been to the, the museum just outside of Pittsburgh. But my dad is gonna read a little account that he wrote of the, of the Johnstown flood uh, just to give you an idea of what happened. So this was a lake that uh, filled up after an evening of almost 12 inches of rain and the lake burst and came down towards Johnstown. So. Is it on? Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. All right. Doing this uh, Sunday school class of John, I've been praying that the Lord would be opening me up to what he wants done. <laughs> and so I'm sitting in that chair, and I'm knowing I'm going to come up here and talk to you. And it said, uh, he gave me the word catastrophic. <laughs> catastrophic. I mean, the word itself sounds pretty terrible. <laughs> Uh, a quick look in the dictionary on my iPhone says extreme, widespread, sudden. Johnstown flood. Although many had talked about the Lake Conemaugh Dam breaking for years, the actual event of it 
on May 31, 1889, was a horrible surprise to the thousands who lived along the 15 miles of rivers that connected the dam location to Johnstown, Pennsylvania. On that fateful day, from the time the dam, the dam failed at 3.10 p.m. to 4.07 p.m. was a mere 57 minutes. In that length of time, a body of water one mile wide, three miles long, and 70 feet deep, weighing 20 million tons, suddenly moved 15 miles downhill, reaching speeds of 90 miles per hour, coming to rest at a new level 450 feet lower than it started, against the three-arched railroad bridge crossing the river on the western edge of the town, and covering Johnstown at a depth of 30 feet. The lake's trip was dozens of starts and stops along its twisted path to Johnstown. It took everything, washing away hillside soils down to bedrock, full-grown trees, complete towns, dozens of farms, Schools, churches, hundreds of houses, huge factories of wood and brick, miles and miles of railroad track, telephone, te telegraph lines, barbed wire, there was a barbed wire factory, <laughs> and whole trains of railroad cars, flipping dozens of 80-ton steam engines end over end. And of course, horses, cows, Pigs, sheep, chickens, dogs, cats, and 2,209 people at last count. 57 minutes. By clogging the three arches of the Johnstown Bridge with its thousands of tons of debris, Gathered on the trip down, Lake Conemaw managed to make a new dam against which it came to rest. And then, unbelievably, because of the collected steam engine fireboxes, heating stoves, the gathered pile of trees, homes, factories, living and dead animals and people, the pile caught fire. Catastrophic. So that just gives us a little glimpse as to what a catastrophe was like, but not even close to what Noah's flood was like. And so as a geologist, I've been to places like Grand Canyon and other places have studied in the Grand Canyon for years. And one of the things that's amazing about all these layers 
is that these layers have fossils in them. So what exactly is a fossil? A fossil is an organism that get, gets buried in these rock layers and turned into rock. And most of the time, you know, we, th we think of dinosaur fossils, but uh, dinosaur fossils are really pretty rare. Most of the fossils that we find in these rocks are marine fossils, animals that used to live in the ocean. Now, I could stand on the edge of Grand Canyon, look down at the rock at my feet. It's a limestone, the Kaibab limestone. And I can see corals and sponges and shelled organisms buried, at that rock, buried in that rock. And I am 7,000 feet above sea level. These rock layers, some of them we can trace across the United States. I've studied this rock layer in particular right there. It's called the Coconino Sandstone. Uh, that occurs over most of the western United States. As a, it's a blanket of sand, basically. This uh, cliff right here, that's the Redwall Limestone. If you've ever been to Mammoth Cave, uh, you've seen the Redwall Limestone. If you've ever been in the Black Hills of South Dakota, you've seen the Redwall Limestone. And where is this? This is Arizona. All right, extends across much of the United States. This cliff right here is called the Tapetes Sandstone. And if you watch the, uh, the new movie, the new is Genesis history movie, we'll talk a lot about this sandstone and some of the folds uh, in this sandstone. But if I drill a hole right here in Ravenna, Ohio, uh, down maybe 4,000 feet, guess what sandstone I'll encounter? This sandstone right here. This sandstone goes all the way to Greenland. Uh, a few years ago, I was in southern part of Israel. Guess what sandstone I saw? Same one. It's worldwide. It has marine fossils in them. Now, what in the world are marine animals doing in the rocks on the continent? Where do ocean animals live? In the ocean. One of the very best evidences for Noah's flood, and this hit me as I was studying geology at Kent. I'm like, we're collecting all these fossils in my paleontology class, but they're all marine, and we're in the middle of a continent. Why are they up here on the continent? And it finally dawned on me that somehow they got here because of the flood. Now, I'm not saying the flood, um, the flood waters were actually that deep. I think one of the things that happened in the flood, uh, in our flood modeling, is that the, the continents sank down and the oceans actually, the ocean floor rose up uh, during the flood actually makes the water come on top of the continents. You can find marine fossils in the top of the Rocky Mountains, in the top of uh, the Himalayas, and so on. Um, it's not that the floodwaters were that deep. Um, it's that the mountains have rose up at the end of the flood. Uh, Psalm 104, verse 8. Uh, the psalmist talks about the mountains rising up at the end of the flood. And guess what geologists tell us today? That all the mountain ranges that we have around the world 
are fairly recent. So these layers, they're not laid down over millions of years. They're laid down during the flood. And then after the flood, the mountains rise back up. There are some other things and, and some other details that I won't go into, but as a geologist, I continually see evidence over and over again that these rocks are laid down by water. Uh, this layer in particular up here, uh, this is uh, the Coconino sandstone. It has these large uh, angled layers in it. And for years, people have said those angled layers represent fossilized desert sand dunes. So the, the, the angles that you see in the rock layers, they say, uh, were made in desert sand dunes. And so a lot of people have used that sandstone up there as proof that Noah's flood could never have happened. Because if there's a rock layer in the rock record, that was made in a desert, how are you going to get a desert in the middle of a flood? All right? And I like challenges. <laughs> and so guess what I did? I went and became an expert on that sandstone. And I found some things of that sandstone that cannot be explained in a desert dune environment. I've, I've gone out to the desert. I've studied lots and lots of desert sand dunes, been to a lot of deserts. Uh, but I've also studied that sandstone from top to bottom all over the place i've traced it from arizona all the way up into the dakotas and so forth we've collected rock samples uh, done analysis under the microscope and grain size sorting and all of that and it just has so many characters in it that just scream that that was made underwater and so now instead of that sandstone being the best evidence against noah's flood I think it's one of the best evidences for Noah's flood, right? I've turned, turned the tables, but that's, that's what we're trying to do as scientists. That's what we're trying to do as creation scientists. And we want to present evidence and, and data that shows people that this book is true. Because what happens? Somebody begins to open up their Bible And they read the first verse. And by the way, I think most people, whether they're a believer or unbeliever, they know what Genesis 1-1 says, don't they? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They begin to read the account of creation and they say, wait a minute, that's not true. Evolution has proved that wrong. They get to the account of the flood and say, wait a minute, that can't be true. The earth is millions of years old and all these rock layers were laid down over millions of years. And, you know, so many people have been turned away from this book because of what science has supposedly told them is true. And so as a scientist, one of the things I, I do as a scientist is I um, try to demonstrate, no, that's not the case. There's lots of evidence for the creation of the flood. So what are these, back to these scoffers. These scoffers in the last days, they're going to say, the creation wasn't real. The flood wasn't real. Okay? Are we in those days today? Yes, indeed. All right. Peter goes on. So we talked about God's past word. Okay? God's present word. By the same word, 
The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so Peter is saying that uh, there's a time coming where God's going to bring judgment on the earth. And then Peter goes on to give uh, some warnings. Um, He gives a warning to unbelievers, and we'll talk in just a moment here uh, about believers as well. But uh, in verses 8 through 10, uh, Peter says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years or as a day. So Peter is quoting that from Moses, from the Song of Moses in uh, Psalm 90, I think it is. Uh, Peter quotes that. And a lot of people look at this and say, ah, this is a formula. This is a formula I can use to reinterpret the days of Genesis. Well, you go back to the days of Genesis and look at it, and that just doesn't work. Um, You go to Exodus 20.11, the Ten Commandments, and it says uh, in the Fourth Commandment, for in six days I made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and then rested on the seventh day. And so what are we supposed to do? Work six days and rest on the seventh, right? Are we supposed to work 6,000 years and then rest 1,000 years? I mean, some people think that, I think, but no. We, we can't use this as a formula. It doesn't work. Uh, Exodus 20.11 makes it very clear that creation week was six days long, and then there was a rest on the seventh day. Just like, you know, we'd read from... Genesis chapter 1, but Exodus 20.11 confirms it. And so this is not a formula. What is is Peter saying here? Peter's saying that God is outside of time. And how can God be outside of time? Well, he made it. (laughs) God made time. He created time. In the beginning, he created time. God created the space, time, matter, universe that we live in. In the beginning, time. In the beginning, God created the heavens, space. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, matter. Right from the beginning, we find out where time, space, and matter come from. So what Peter is saying right here, Peter's not giving us a formula. He's saying that God's outside of time and that God is really patient. You know, a day, a thousand years, it doesn't matter to God. He's, 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 he's waiting, okay? says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. There's God's word again, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any of you should perish, but all should come to repentance. So is it God's desire that anyone goes to hell? No, he doesn't want anyone to. It's like, you know, our own children. We wish the very best for our own children, right? We don't want them to be in pain. We don't want them to be destroyed. We don't want them to suffer. God doesn't want that for any of us either. But nonetheless, just like a thief comes, eventually the end will come. God's patience is going to wear out, and the end is going to come. It says the heavens will pass away with a roar, Notice at the end of time, there's going to be a big bang. Some translations say a great noise. Now, a lot of people have it 
backwards. They say that things started off with a big bang in the universe a long time ago. That's not how Genesis says. Do you know the earth was here three days before there were any stars? Go read Genesis 1. But it's going to end that way. It's going to end with a great noise. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Peter is saying, if you're an unbeliever, God's patience is going to run out. And when should you come to repentance? Today. Don't procrastinate. Don't put it off. Because you don't know when this day is going to be. God's future word. So again, we looked over, we looked at this verse uh, just a minute ago. It was on the last slide as well. But I want to highlight here that, you know, his promise is that he is coming back, right? He will come. And verse 13 now, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. Man, whenever I get discouraged because of the curse, you know, what came upon us in Genesis chapter 3, you know, why is the world that we live in so bad? And so hard, I go to Revelation 21 and 22. How come? That's where the curse is going to end. And that's what we're waiting for, isn't it? No more death, no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. It's going to go away. (laughs) Praise the Lord. For believers. So if you're an unbeliever, Peter is encouraging you, get your act together. But he doesn't leave it at that. For believers, for most of us in here. Since all these things are be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? So Peter asks us the question, what sort of people ought you to be? Knowing that God's word created the heavens and the earth, God's word brought the flood, God's word is also going to bring future destruction. By God's word, he's coming back. So what kind of people ought we to be we have to live lives of holiness and godliness we ought to to wait for and hasten the coming day of god because in which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn but according to his promise there's his word again we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and verse 14 i'll close there therefore my beloved Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. What does Peter tell us? That, you know, this is not something um, that comes easy. Holiness, righteousness, being at peace with others and with God, that's not something that comes easy. What do we need to do? We need to be diligent about that. We need to pay attention to it, right? 
And Peter is saying that, you know, this is coming, so make sure that you find yourself spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, being our creator, our savior, and our coming king. Thank you, Lord, that you have put evidence uh, all around us, evidence in the creation, uh, evidence in the rocks, evidence in the mountains, evidence in your word that this book is true, that all the words here that you've written are true. And I do pray, Lord, that if there's any here today that haven't seen the truth of your word or uh, that have been resistant or that their hearts have been hard, I pray, Lord, that pray, Lord, that you would soften them. Help them to see that there is an answer for the curse. Uh, there is an answer uh, for all the terrible things that are going on, Lord, and that you're just being patient and that you don't want anyone to perish. You want them to come to repentance. And pray, Lord, that if any are here today, that need you, pray, Lord, to hear that uh, you would take care of that today, uh, that you would help them to take care of that, Lord, bring them to you through your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, for the rest of us, uh, the rest of us who call ourselves believers, that uh, we would be faithful, uh, that we would be found uh, without spot, that would be we would be holy and blameless, And Lord, when we do mess up, and and certainly we do, uh, pray, Lord, that we would be quick uh, to repent and come back to you. Uh, Pray a blessing on this church, Lord, that that you would uh, guide them and lead them. And uh, pray, Lord, you'd bless them richly as they seek uh, to spread uh, the good news in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.